You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 104. Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife and conservation issues. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. Today, we are once again delving into the Wildlands archives to share with you an interview that was recorded for our film project, Bluebird Man. Lots of the interviews that we record for specific film projects end up not being used in the final films, even though we still might find the content of those interviews very interesting. One of our first shoots for our half-hour documentary, Bluebird Man, took place in the Okanagan Valley of British Columbia. Fellow producer Neil Paprocki and myself spent about a week in Canada shooting with the then-president of the North American Bluebird Society, Sherry Lynn. By coincidence, Sherry lives very close to another one of our collaborators, Lauren Meads, from the Burring Owl Conservation Society of British Columbia. When we visited, Lauren was housing PhD student Catherine Dale from Queen's University, who was engaged in a research project on bluebird migration. Neil and I were lucky enough to spend a day out with Catherine at one of her field sites and got some really neat footage of her banding adult male bluebirds. After a long day out in the field, we sat down with Catherine for an interview, which we are sharing with you today for the first time. In addition to her research on bluebirds, Catherine is also one of the creators of Dispatches from the Field, a blog site focused on stories about field work from all around the globe. A few of us Wild Lens folks have contributed to her blog site, and we're all really big fans of the work that Catherine and her collaborators are doing with this blog. So that link to the Dispatches from the Field blog will be up on the show notes page for this episode, which you'll find at wildlensinc.org slash EOC 104. And of course, you'll also find additional information on Bluebirds and Catherine's research up on that page. Now, let's jump into the interview. I'm Catherine Dale. I'm a PhD student at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. Um, I'm just finishing up my PhD and I've been studying uh, western bluebird migration in the Okanagan Valley in BC. There's three different species of bluebirds and so I'm sure there's some differences, but at least like the the western and mountain bluebirds that are here on the west. Um, what, what do people know about where they winter um, and just, uh, you know, any, any basic knowledge that people have about migration at all? Well, obviously I know the most about western bluebird migration um, and uh, they tend to they sort of they breed throughout uh, the, the western U.S. and uh, some breed in Mexico, and then we obviously have them here in B.C. Uh, and different populations have different migratory strategies. Uh, so some of these birds are fully resident. Um, so, for example, in California, along the coast, most of them stay put. Um, and then here in BC, we have largely migrant populations. Uh, but the Okanagan Valley is a little bit unique because here we have a partially migratory population. So uh, we have birds that stay for the winter and then birds that also leave. We don't know exactly where they're going when they leave because obviously, since there are resident birds, it's hard to figure out whether what you're seeing is a bluebird that's been there all along or a migrant that's come, da- come from further north. Uh, but we do know that they winter... Uh, throughout the southern U.S. and then in Mexico as well. Okay. 
Cool. And are, are mountain bluebirds kind of similar? Uh, yeah. Oh, and I, sh- I should add, actually, that western bluebirds are often altitudinal migrants in the winter. So a lot of them, for example, in Arizona, and even here to a certain extent, uh, they'll just sort of come down in elevation from where they breed. So you know, they'll breed higher up in the hills. They'll come down for the winter. And then on warm winter days, so sometimes in February you get a freak winter uh, a freak day that's really warm in the winter. Um, they'll actually go up and check out the, the breeding sites in the middle of the winter. Hmm. Um, Western bluebirds are actually the least migratory of the three bluebird species, or so says the species account. Mm-hmm. Um, mu- uh, mountain bluebirds tend to be fully migratory. Uh, so the mountain bluebirds that we get here, they all leave for the winter. Uh, Eastern bluebirds, again, most of the northern populations are fully migratory, but I know that they also have some resident populations, and then in the middle they have some partially migratory populations. And then when, when the bluebirds come back and they, and they start arriving on the breeding grounds, um, what, what's, like, what's like the first thing that, that they do when they get back to the breeding ground? What, what, do, they, what do they start doing when they get back here from, from migration? So in BC, we see we start to see arriving migratory bluebirds kind of in the middle of March, uh, which is pretty typical of Western bluebirds. So they're pretty early arrivals, quite a bit earlier than a lot of other migrants. Uh, and when they get back here in this population, they actually already seem to have come back with a pair. I mean, you don't see them doing a lot of birds when they get back from migration. Uh, they'll the males will get here first, and they'll start advertising. So they'll stand on branches and sing. Uh, the western bluebirds, they seem to come back in pairs. That's what it, they're, they're almost instantaneously in pairs. Um, they do a lot of eating, and they start checking out the boxes right away. Even though we don't see the first nests until April, they will look into boxes. And that's actually a form of courtship in western bluebirds. So the male will fly to a box and kind of poke his head into it to demonstrate to the female that... Uh, that, you know, this is a good box. Sometimes he'll even pick up nesting material, you know. This is how you do it. You put this in here. (laughs) Um, So that's kind of neat. And, uh, I mean, I think there is a fair amount of swapping of... I mean, things aren't settled when they show up. They do seem to be in pairs almost right away, but we've had a lot of banded birds either, like, swap spouses, so we banded them together as a pair, and then they show up at opposite ends of the same uh, breeding site with different different mates. So, I mean, I don't think things are necessarily settled right when they get back. But, um, yeah, they certainly take their time before they start breeding. Cool. And then what, uh, what what's known about how they choose their nesting sites and, and how they choose their mates, too? Is it is it the females who are choosing the males? Is it the males who are choosing the females? Do people do people know any much about mate selection and how that works? I don't know much about mate selection. I mean... Obviously, you're looking... They're really philopatric to the same box, so they like to come back to the same area. Sometimes they will actually switch mates uh, and both come back to the same area but have different mates, so they're very close together. Um, In terms of choosing mates, I mean, plumage is often a a signal in terms of quality, especially a nice bright blue plumage like you get in the bluebirds. Um, It seems that they're not really choosing on the strength of song, or at least if they are, they're not doing it the same way, same way many birds do. Um, but uh, I think that the box, the quality of cavity is important, hence the male demonstrating. Um, and then it takes blue plumages or what, what we call structural plumages. Um, so they're actually, the color is made by nanostructure within the feathers. Um, so it's rather difficult to make. And there is some evidence in uh, eastern bluebirds 
that it may indicate condition. So the females could be using that as a cue uh, who's a high quality male. There is a certain amount of uh, fidelity to the same mate, which is kind of interesting. I mean, I, I have found cases of individuals that did swap spouses even when both of them came back. But for the most part, and that's, this is not only the case in BC, it's throughout the range, uh, when they come back, if both of them come back, usually they stay together. How long do Western bluebirds live on, on average? And is there like a, a longevity record that you, that you know of? Oh, it's funny you should ask me that because Lauren asked me that earlier this week and I realized I have no idea because I've only been doing this for, you know, two, this is my third season. Um, and I've got birds that have come back from the first year. But uh, it turns out when I looked it up that uh, the longevity record at the moment, I believe, is eight years. Uh, six to eight years seems to be where most of the, the long-lived records were coming in. Um, most birds, I suspect, won't live that long. You're probably looking at a, a shorter lifespan, but uh, like that's, four or five years. yeah. What about western bluebirds in this in this area makes it uh, kind of a unique area to study to study westerns? Right. Um, well, I mean, first of all, bluebirds are a pretty amazing study species for most studies because they do nest in boxes. Um, they will happily nest in boxes, which means that they're easily accessible. Uh, they're relatively tolerant of disturbance. I mean, um, we do try very hard not to disturb them too much. Uh, and for, they prefer not to be uh, caught while they're sitting on eggs and that sort of thing. But overall, because they're quite easily accessible and relatively tolerant of disturbance, they're, they're good species to work with. Here in the Okanagan, what I'm really interested in is the fact that we have this partially migratory population, uh, which, is, which is a fairly unique situation. Um, so, you know, some of the birds will leave in sort of November seems to be about when they leave, but some of them stay here for the winter. Um, and, you know, it's, it's not that warm here in the winter. It's, uh, you know, there's a lot, there is snow, uh, there's ice, and we'll see them sort of drinking off of icicles on cliffs. I've seen them do that. Um, so it's, it's an interesting thing for them to do, and I guess I'm interested in working out which birds stay and which go, and uh, whether ultimately those decisions have consequences. So whether uh, p potentially staying puts you in a better position to breed the following year, or whether uh, migrating leaves you at a disadvantage or maybe gives you more, an advantage because you spent the winter in a more hospitable climate. I mean, a lot of nest box programs uh, facilitate a, a lot of banding of uh, nestling bluebirds and adult bluebirds and just what what type of of scientific information and understanding can we gain from banding uh, banding bluebirds on the breeding grounds well i mean the answer to your question about longevity for one um certainly it gives us information about return rates um so when i go out in the in the spring i look around to see who i banded last year has come back again uh, so how many nestlings are recruited to the population and how and what the adult survival is from year to year you you get from banding records why, why is it why is it important to know about like uh, how many nestlings are coming back from previous years well um basically we want to know that it's it's great if nestlings fledge at the end of the year um that's wonderful but Really, a nest isn't a success until you actually have those individuals, those young individuals, recruited into a population. Uh, so they have to come back the next year and breed as well. Otherwise, essentially, what it looks like you're producing a lot of nestlings, but you're actually not increasing the population at all. Um, so that's, that's definitely a good reason to ban them. 
Um, I should note, however, that it's, it's more useful for the male nestlings um, because in bluebirds, the females are the ones that disperse. Obviously, you don't, want, you don't want a whole family of bluebirds staying in the same area because they'll breed with each other, which is an, an issue. In breeding, is not usually a good thing. Um, so it's, it's good if, they, uh, if one of the sexes disperses. And in bluebirds, that tends to be the female. Uh, and they go, they go a fair distance. Um, but here, for example, uh, I've caught a number of... Um, of returned returned nestlings from previous years, but they're almost all males. I think I think I'm at about uh, I must be getting close to 30 nestlings from previous years caught, and of those, only two have been female. And I don't think that means female survivorship is lower. It just means that my females are going elsewhere. They're leaving the population. So, so what else besides uh, like recruitment and survival? What other types? Of- well, I mean, it's a great way to uh, establish migratory connectivity if you have banding resites. So, for example, I have seen one or two of the bluebirds I banded in the summer during the winter, which is great because then I know both where they're spending the summer and where they're spending the winter. Even if that's just down the hill, I have established that, you know, the birds that are breeding up here are then coming down to winter by the side of the lake. So that's really useful. Um, and again, that can, that can be useful throughout the population problem with banding resites is obviously there are a lot of birds and the bands that we've been putting out there are just a drop in the bucket. It's really hard to recite banded birds. But when we do recite them, we can get a lot of information from that. Um, you know, establishing where, where, for example, uh, migrants are coming from in some of the, the wintering grounds. You know, are they BC migrants? Uh, so Especially because there, there is such an active community of bluebirders, you actually do get a number of band returns. So I've had a couple of people email me and say, I saw a banded bluebird. Is it one of yours? Uh, and a couple times it has been. So that's been really useful information. You know, to someone who, uh, you know, has, has no idea what a misnet is, basically just an explanation of, like, how you get these birds in the hand, you know? Um, sure, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or not, as the case may be. <laughs> right, right. And, and How do you try to do that? <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah, sure. Um, so I, I guess I should start by saying that a lot of people catch bluebirds in boxes, which is another benefit of working with bluebirds because you actually can set up a little trap door in the box, essentially, and you can prop it up with a piece of grass. And the blue, when the bluebird goes into the box, they knock over the piece of grass, the trap door falls down, and they're sitting in the box waiting for you to let them out. Um, That works really well when they have nestlings. Um, As I said, it's better not to trap them on eggs, so you have to wait a reasonably long time into the breeding season before you can do that. Uh, If you need to catch them sooner, which I do, you can try doing it using a really fine net, a mist net, um, which I put up by a box. So once once a bluebird pair has been back for a while, they've settled who's going to breed with who, they choose the location that they're going to breed at, and... uh, they, they're, they're pretty attached to it once they've chosen it. Um, so what I do is I set up my net beside this box of theirs, and then I take my little model bluebird, whose name is Webster, um, and I put him on the box, and I play back bluebird song, and uh, I do that to suggest to the bluebirds that somebody is trying to take over their box. Uh, and when it works really well, they get angry about that, uh, and fly in to uh, show show this guy who's boss, basically, and um, end up hitting my net. 
and then I'll get them out of the net and uh, put bands on their legs so that I can keep track of them later. Um, often they're not as aggressive as I would like them to be, so it can be quite challenging to catch them, but uh, ideally that's how it works. So with bluebirds, what happens after that first clutch? Like, say the first clutch fledges successfully, what happens next with bluebirds? Yeah, that's a good question. So bluebirds are kind of cool because they can, in fact, double brood. Uh, so after the first cl- clutch fledges, they, they can and often do lay a second clutch. They don't always. Um, I would say probably over half of my bluebirds have, though. Um, so as, as long as they get that first clutch out relatively early, sort of by mid-June, then they're, they're quite happy to uh, build a nest again. They will happily use the same box, even if you don't clean it out. They just sort of build a fresh nest on top of the old one. Uh, and then they do the whole thing again. Uh, and one of the things that's kind of neat about them is that uh, the fledglings from the first nest often stick around with the parents. They're not completely independent when they fledge. They do still need feeding. And when the second nest hatch, when the second nest hatches, they can actually help to feed those new nestlings, which is pretty neat to see. Um, nobody's quite sure what what advantage that provides for anyone really because um, I know they've done studies in California where they found that these uh, young juvenile helpers as they call them don't actually seem to make a difference in the success of the nest um, probably because they're just too young to be bringing that much food you know they're still figuring things out themselves um, but it might help them that would be an interesting thing to study because it, it might be a good thing for them to have some practice with feeding nestlings so that next year when they actually go to breed for themselves they are much better at it. They've got a bit of experience. Do people know much about, um, so, you know, at, after the first brood, you know, maybe they don't have a second brood, or, or after the second brood, you know, ap- after breeding is done, um, what, are the, what do the fledglings do and what do the adults do after breeding is kind of, you know, after it's kind of wrapped up, but maybe before, um, before they start migrating, or, or do they start migrating, like, immediately? They definitely don't start migrating immediately. Um, as I said, here in B.C., they don't migrate really until November. So bluebird numbers actually go up in September and October, and then very few are seen in November. And the guys that are seen are pretty much the ones that are going to stay here. Um, I wish I knew the answer to that question, because honestly, the answer is in BC, they seem to disappear. So the first time I came out here, I came out here in August, which is pretty much when the breeding season is done for most birds. And uh, I, it took me days to find a bluebird. Um, they just, they weren't really around very much. Um, so, I mean, I suspect that they are hanging out in family groups, um, teaching the young to forage, especially the recently fledged young. Uh, and there is some anecdotal evidence that they migrate and that they winter in groups. And actually, the evidence that they winter in groups is from California, and it's not anecdotal at all. That is actually a full study. Um, here in BC, I have anecdotal evidence that they might winter in family groups. I mean, you, you talked a little bit about like the, the, the blue color um, and where it comes from, um, but um, I guess I, I want like a little bit more explanation there. Like, is this something unique to bluebirds? Like, where do other birds get their pigment? Is it your, or where? Like, the, or sorry, their color. Like, is it is it different than? Bluebirds? Okay. Well, this is definitely not my area of expertise. It's something I'm just getting into myself. But you have your two basic classes of, of pigments. Um, and some of them, like carotenoids, so yellow and red colorations, they tend to be from the diet. 
Um, and so they actually, it's, it's been well known for quite a while that they reflect condition. Um, so for example, if a bird is eating well, it will have brighter plumage. Um, then you've got what we call structural plumages, which are things like blue, blue colors. And uh, they are, they're based on nanoparticles in the feathers and how the, the structure of them, how they're aligned in a crystal structure. Um, and uh, it's less, less well known how that connects to conditions. So it's actually kind of neat that they found in eastern bluebirds there is a connection. So is it, I mean, is the blue color, is that, you know, when you say it's structural, is it, is the feather actually blue or what, what's going on? How, how does it appear blue to our eyes? Um, it, it is how the light reflects off this crystalline structure. And actually, I think a lot of it we can't see. So a lot of it is actually ultraviolet reflectance. Birds can see ultraviolet, we can't. Um, so we actually may be missing a lot of the, the signals in the plumage. They're seeing more than we are, for sure. But the, their, their, their feather color is not pigment-related. Like, the feathers aren't actually blue, right? They're, just... they're, they're not pigmented, no. It is the structure within the feather. I mean, you, you touched on a lot of things that are sort of unique about bluebirds and that make them, like, interesting for you. Um, but I'm wondering, like, you know, what sort of stands out at the top of your mind? Like, if someone asks you, like, what's, what's the most interesting thing that you've learned, like, in your studies about, about bluebirds? Like, what, what, you know, like... Um, like, why, you know, why do you find them an interesting study species? Yeah. Why, why, are, why are they uh, interesting enough that you wanted to spend, what, four years studying them? <laughs> Well, I mean, I think what's interesting for me is not necessarily what's interesting for other people. I'm really, really fascinated by this partial migration system. I mean, I think partial migration is really interesting because it's a potential risk to stay uh, on your breeding grounds for the winter, especially when it's, you know, when it's really quite cold and it's very unpredictable. But the payoffs can be pretty big, or at least in some other species, that's, that's what it seems, that, uh, you know, it can be a huge advantage to remain as a resident. Uh, so that's what I really find interesting, and uh, whether this decision is not really a decision at all, whether it's something that's uh, genetically determined, or whether it might have something to do with condition and some combination of, um, you know, what shape a bird is in, what sex a bird is, and often that's an important thing uh, in deciding whether bird stays or goes for the winter. Um, and then even personality is, is starting to come into it, so that's really interesting. Um, a couple of studies have shown that migratory individuals, and in, uh, I believe it was blue tits and a species of fish, they seem to be bolder than resident individuals. Sorry, the other way around. So resident individuals in uh, blue tits and a species of fish seem to be bolder individuals than the migrants, which I think is pretty fascinating um, because it suggests that potentially your personality has a lot to do with how you react to what's going on in the environment and how ultimately uh, you choose to migrate or uh, to remain a resident. Um, but what I think most people will find interesting about bluebirds, I mean, what I've been astounded to learn is just how beloved they are. People feel really strongly about bluebirds, um, which has led to some great support and a lot of interest in what I'm doing, which I don't think would have necessarily been generated with another species. Like, it's really been neat to see how interested people are in their birds and how much they care about them, and they, they feel really strongly about it. And why, why do you think that is? Why do you think they, they care and feel so strongly about them? Well, I mean, as a bluebird researcher, I've spent a lot of time staring at bluebirds. They have a lot of personality, surprisingly enough. Uh, you know, I think maybe you don't realize that until you've spent a lot of time watching birds, but I think 
that's maybe partly why they are so well-loved, because you can spend a lot of time watching them. They will nest in nest boxes, uh, so to a certain extent you can direct where you want them to nest, and you can watch them out of your window. You can spend a lot of time with them. They're extraordinarily beautiful birds, um, but they're also really accessible birds, and I think that, uh, that that helps a lot. You don't have to go trekking in the rainforest to see this gorgeous bird. You can put a box up outside your kitchen window, and you can, you can follow them throughout the nesting cycle, which is really, really cool. What kind of, like, cultural significance do they have, like, here specifically, you know, that you've sort of learned about through studying them in this particular area? That's a good question. Do they have a cultural significance? Um, I mean, I would have to say that the, the cultural significance is, is sort of not unique to this area. It really is. It's a continent-wide phenomenon, and people really feel strongly about their bluebirds for the reasons that I've just specified. Um, do you guys have anything on cooperative breeding in adult bluebirds? Because that's actually one of the other interesting things about them, that they are occasionally cooperative breeders. No. Um, I, I actually don't. Tell us about them. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it just occurred to me that you, you might want that. Yeah, totally. um, so this has actually mostly been shown by work done in California by uh, Dr. Janice Dickinson, who's, who's been studying them there for a really long time. Um, and basically what she's learned is that a small percentage of bluebird nests, it's not only the parents feeding, it's also offspring from the previous year, usually sons, because females disperse, as I said. Uh, and instead of breeding themselves, they'll choose to spend the, the breeding season helping their parents feed the, uh, the offspring from their new nest. Um, so there are a couple reasons they might do that. Um, obviously, the first choice would usually be to breed for yourself, but if they can't get a female or if cavities are limiting, um, then it, it does help them genetically, um, evolutionarily, to help feed their siblings or half-siblings um, because you know, that is another way to continue your genes. Um, and it's interesting that uh, Dr. Dickinson has actually linked cooperative breeding with residency so if the the male offspring from a from a nest spend the winter with their parents on on this on their parents territory they're much more likely to help uh to help them the following summer so they're they're likely to cooperate with them uh, and it's it's neat that had not actually been shown in bc cooperative breeding in bluebirds um I think mainly because nobody had really looked yet, uh, but I have seen it in my study as well. So I, I have a number of bluebirds where the, the males have helped feed the offspring the following season, which is kind of neat to see. Cool. But No, I mean, that's all I got, cool. you know, unless there's sort of anything else that, you know, you think's else. interesting about them that, that we haven't, you know, covered. Because, I mean, we're still learning about, we're still in the process of learning about bluebirds, and you've kind of yeah, been studying true. them. It's true, although, you know, your questions were making me realize that I've been studying them in a really narrow way. I mean, I actually, I really don't know how they're choosing their mates, and it's something that I would like to know. You know, you come in with this basic preconception that male birds show up, they stake out their territory, they sing, and the female judges either the male himself or his territory, and you know, makes her decision based on that. And with bluebirds, you know, because they show up in this essentially they seem to show up paired so you wonder where the choosing takes place and and what they're basing it on i mean if they're actually coming back paired already then they must they can't be deciding on the territory quality it must be the individual quality um 
And interestingly, there's, I have some preliminary evidence, very preliminary evidence of assortative mating. So it seems that residents are more likely to, uh, to mate with residents and migrants are more likely to mate with migrants, which makes sense if this choosing is happening before the breeding season even starts. Because you can only choose from the individuals you're seeing. And if you're a migrant, you're not seeing the resident individuals. If you're a migrant, you're only seeing migrants. Yeah. The migrants aren't here when you're choosing. Exactly, yeah. But then, I mean... It could be that territory quality might play into who's able to stay here for the winter. So then maybe territory quality is indirectly influencing mate choice that way. Right. I mean, it's, it's a great question. Um, yeah, if territory quality, the higher quality territories are the birds who end up staying. And then because they stay, then they end up mating with a female who stays. Yeah, and then because they stay, they might even get higher quality territories because they might get the first pick, and so... Which one came first? <laughs> exactly. It's kind of a chicken or the egg question. Um, so, yeah, it's, it, it's a really good question, and sometimes I wish I had a species that displayed really obviously like hummingbirds, you know. But... Uh, so what about, I mean, what... I mean, I think you may have talked a, a bit about this, and this may be another one of those questions that you don't know that people that you know that we just don't have an answer to now and needs more study but like what what role does the does their the song play you know if it's if not to select mates you know that's a really good question and particularly good because uh it seems based on people that i've talked to and at this long-term study site in california and even some a little bit of experience of my own that males tend to be singing when the females are incubating which is really strange because usually in birds, song serves to attract a female and then you might want to sing while she's egg-laying to remind her how great you are and to scare off rival males. I mean, those are really the two functions of song in birds. They either are to uh, attract mates or to compete with other males. Um, so it's, it's kind of a strange situation. And singing while the female's incubating, at which point all of her eggs have been fertilized, I, I'm not sure what the male stands to gain from that, to be honest. Um, so it's, it's an excellent question. I suppose he could be singing during incubation to try and get extra pair um, matings with, with other females. Um, so bluebirds are what we call socially monogamous. They pair up and they raise a brood together, a male and a female. Uh, but genetically, they're not at all monogamous. So there is a lot of uh, mating outside the pair bond going on. Um, and so it's possible that, you know, once the male has his little clutch of eggs all secured, he thinks, well, he might as well go out and get some paternity somewhere else. So that could be why he's singing. But, uh, yeah. Don't really know. No, bluebirds are a little weird when it comes to song, actually. Hmm. Well, that's cool. I'm glad you brought up the, the extra pair calculations because that was um, something I wanted you to talk about and then forgot. Yeah, I think it's, um, I mean, it's a pretty standard rate for, uh, for a passer and for a little perching bird. It's, um, in California, I think it's 19% of offspring were extra pair, so it came from uh, outside the pair bond. And uh, I think 45% of nests com- contained at least one extra pair offspring, so it's, it's, yeah, I mean, it happens a lot. It is definitely pretty normal. That's all I got. You got anything else? No. Nope. <laughs> Man, I feel like I just had a thesis defense. What do you know about bluebirds? <laughs> All right. That was our archival interview with PhD student and bluebird researcher, Catherine Dale. 
It's clear that Catherine is fascinated by the biology and behavior of the bluebird, and it wasn't until we conducted this interview that I really realized how much is unknown about the breeding behavior of this easily recognizable bird. There are two things that become really clear to me after listening to this interview again. First, we still have a lot to learn about bluebirds. And second, it's really amazing how all of these aspects of their life cycle are interconnected. While Catherine's research may answer some really fascinating questions about bluebird migration, it will undoubtedly also raise additional questions about many aspects of their behavior. So if you want to learn more about bluebirds and Catherine's research, you can head on over to the show notes page for this episode, which you'll find at wildlensinc.org slash EOC 104. We actually have a very special deleted scene from our film Bluebird Man that does feature Catherine and her bluebird research. Up until now, this was only available to view on our Bluebird Man DVD, but we'll be releasing it online specifically to pair with today's podcast episode. So be sure to check this out on the show notes page if you enjoyed today's conversation. Again, those show notes can be found at wildlensinc.org slash EOC 104. The Eyes on Conservation podcast is a production of Wild Lens. Today's episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky, along with Neil Paprocki. Our theme music is by The Humidors. The Humidors.